The following is a message from Wellsprings Congregation. Good morning. The equinox is almost here. The days are getting longer. The sun is shining brightly, at least here in southeastern Pennsylvania, wherever you all are joining us from online. I hope the sun is shining in your hearts. We are starting a new message series today, and I'm honored to get to kick it off. And I was thinking about how what we've explored this entire church year so far here at Wellsprings, Starting, if you recall, way, way back in September, which feels like 200 years ago. Do you all recall? Um, With how do we challenge our American idols? Moving on to how can we intentionally love this world, to hearing the stories of so many in our community about how we come together to create meaning. And as we continue exploring all of those questions, we're moving into the question of what would who do? That's what I keep filling in that blank with. And I have a religious educator friend who serves a UU church down in New Jersey. And when I was telling her about this message series, she said a few years ago in RE, they weren't doing this message series, but they used that question, but they filled in the blank with what would love do? And I loved that echo that we heard then in Rodney's story about John Lewis saying, love, love is what kept him marching, not just that day in Selma, but through his whole life. And so what would love do, I think, is a beautiful title, and we're going to fill in love with the names of lots of people throughout our long, long human history. Because, as you all know, the world, I've said this over and over, the world is burning. It has urgent, urgent needs. And sometimes those of us here in the 21st century wonder, are we up to the task of putting out the fires? And so looking to our heroes and saviors of the past can be a way for us to say, what did they do? Not, not to say, oh no, they were such amazing heroes, we can never be like them. We ordinary humans, and our times are so awful, we can't do anything the way they did. No, we don't look back to hold them up as some impossible standard. We look back to recognize that they too were human and flawed. And living in times with needs surely just as urgent as these are, And yet they took action. And so we look to them for hope and for guidance and some inspiration. Because you all, the historical Jesus faced empire surely just as crushing as ours. And the historical Muhammad looked around and saw injustice in all the systems in which he lived. And the historical Buddha, the man who became Buddha, was moved to take his path because he saw the deep suffering caused by all of the inequities all around him. And our own more modern day religious and philosophical leaders and our civil rights leaders 
looked at the world's needs and said, what can I do with love? And they did that not because they knew the outcome was assured, not because they knew the victory would be theirs. You recall that Martin Luther King said, I may not make it to the other side of the mountain. And the fact is, none of us may make it to the other side of the mountain because we don't even know what the other side of the mountain is. But we know that there is work that we can do. And that others have done before us. And so we look to them to say, what, what would they do now based on what we know that they did in their own days? That's what we'll explore together over the next two months. That was real feedback. I was like, oh no. I'm going to keep talking. There we go. Um, But I wanted to start this message since I got, uh, honestly, I volunteered to be like, I'm going to begin it, um, with someone you probably haven't heard of. So how many of you, when you saw the title for today's message, which is, what would Francis Ellen Watkins Harper do, went, who the heck is this? I'm guessing most people, not all, some of you maybe know your deep UU history and your American history well enough to maybe have heard her name. But she is actually one of our Unitarian ancestors. And she lived most of her life just down the road in Philadelphia. Her house is a National Historic Landmark, and you can go see it. Her gravesite is an honored place. And I think it is a crime that we do not know her name in America. And so I wanted to look at what... What would Frances Harper do, not just because I think she led an extraordinary life, but because she is one of our ancestors in this faith movement. And when I think about the times in which we live and the times in which she lived, and I can say, what would she do now? I think she would do now what she did then, which is use her powerful gifts, to fuel her work, to build community across and through difference, to speak truth to power at every opportunity, and to explicitly name the wrongs that need to be addressed, and to root all of that in the values of her faith and spirituality. And that's what we can do. So who the heck was Frances Harper? She was born almost 200 years ago in 1825 to a free black family in Baltimore, Maryland. And she became a poet, a writer, an orator, a lecturer, a mother, an abolitionist, a suffragist, a temperance activist. You all, she embodied so many identities and wove her religious beliefs in a discerning critical, critical analysis of both scripture and dominant American culture to make demands for the equal rights of both African Americans and women. She demanded better conditions for children and the working poor, demanded that American society take care of those it had dehumanized, and she used her words to highlight injustice and pain at both the systemic and personal level. She did not let those in power look away from the suffering that they themselves had caused, nor shirk from their responsibilities to do something about it. 
Her work spans six decades, the entire latter half of the 19th century. And her letters and speeches, her short stories and four novels and multiple volumes of poetry stand as a testament to her passion and the intellect that from her very earliest work, a volume of poetry published when she was only 20 years old, that she had an awareness of the ways in which her religious views intersected with her race and her gender to shape her life and the lives of all those around her. She was what I would call, and I think anybody looking at her today might call an intersectional writer and activist, even though that term intersectionality had not yet been coined by Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw and would not come into common use until 200 years after she was gone. And while misogyny and white supremacy absolutely buried her work, her commitment to being a sister to humanity, as she once wrote about herself, continues continues to be a light for those of us today who also want to be siblings to humanity. And so for modern-day activists, modern-day Unitarian Universalists, Frances Harper's legacy is one of hope and also one that shines light on both our promises, our possibilities, and our failures not just as a nation but as a faith movement. Her family, who she was raised with, her maternal aunt and uncle, were very active in the abolitionist movement in Baltimore. Her uncle was a reverend and a bishop in the AME church. They ran a school for freed black people and were active in the Underground Railroad. Her roots in activism started early. And while she herself was free, came from a free family, She encountered many African Americans from the South whose lives were far harsher than she had known. And it was in hearing and witnessing their stories that she was moved to do something about it. And she left her home in Baltimore and came up to Philadelphia where the Underground Railroad Movement was very active. And she said, here are my skills and here are my gifts. Put them to use. And those skills of being able to speak with people and hear their stories and then to write about them and to share them with others in a way that moves people to action was exactly what the Underground Railroad Movement and the Pennsylvania Abolitionist Movement employed her to do. And she went on in that work to actually work for the Abolitionist Society of Maine and traveled all over New England. She gave lectures, she gave speeches, she wrote letters to the editor. I joke sometimes about writing sternly worded letters. But y'all, in the 1850s, people were reading their newspapers and paying attention to those sternly worded letters. She moved people. She believed deeply in education, and so she actually accepted a call in her mid-twenties to leave Philadelphia and Maine and go to Ohio and be the first African-American woman teacher at Union Seminary. She worked there for a couple of years, but felt her skills weren't being put to good use. She wanted more action, and she came back to Philadelphia and continued to write and to speak and become more active in the abolitionist movement. She later married 
another abolitionist and moved to Ohio and they had a child and it was her money from the speaking engagements and the writing of her books that gave them the money to buy that plot of land in Ohio. And she continued to write from that position. And then when her husband died, because she was a woman and did not have the right to own her land or the right to custody of her stepchildren, all of that was taken from her by the bank six months after her husband's death. And she and her child, her biological child, came back to Philadelphia where she continued to work. And while she had been aware always of the plight of women as second-class citizens, well, they didn't really have citizenship at all since they weren't allowed to vote, did they? Those moments of her own personal hardships, coupled with the stories she heard from formerly enslaved women, made her deeply aware of how the injustice that enslaved people and the injustice that kept women bound were part and parcel of the same injustice. And she turned to Scripture often. She was a Christian. She was active in the Unitarian, First Unitarian Church of Philadelphia and remained active in the AME Church there as well. And those two places of faith for her, while technically both Christian, two different denominations, she was a bridge builder in that interfaith work, It was through the interfaith work there in Philadelphia that she really began to say, yes, we need to free everyone. We need to end chattel slavery. And you know what? We need to free women as well. She became active then in the suffragist movement, working with both African-American women and white women to say, once we're free of slavery, we need to keep this work going as well. So throughout the Civil War, she continued to read and write and connect with people. And doing that across bridges and across faith movements, she was invited in 1866, the year after the Civil War ended, to speak at the women's the National Women's Rights Convention, which had been meeting regularly for about a decade in places across the Northeast. And she gave a speech that year that became one of the most famous, people call it an abolitionist speech, but she wrote in 1866 when slavery had ended. And what she was actually advocating for in this speech was the full suffrage of African American people and women. That was still up for debate, by the way. The 13th Amendment hadn't passed yet. And this speech became titled, We Are All Bound Up Together. And she said in it, We are all bound up together in one great bundle of humanity. And I love that as someone who has universalist theology, that we are all one people. And she wrote that in speeches and she wrote that in poems and in her novels that God made each of us. We are all beloved children of God, she wrote over and over, because that was her interpretation of the scripture. And she would hold the tension of that. We are all one bundle of humanity. Justify that with scripture while holding the tension that some of those same scriptures had been justified to enslave people who looked like her, to subjugate women like her. 
And she used those scriptures to say, you are wrong in that interpretation. You who hold power are wrong because we are all beloved children of God. And then, later in that speech, while she held that universalist value that we are all one bundle of humanity, she then went on to name the specific ways in which our systems, especially and particularly, harm certain people among us. So it is all well and good to say we are one bundle of humanity. But, she said, society cannot trample on the weakest and feeblest without receiving the curse in its own soul. Those of us in power, those of you in power, she seemed to say, you may think you are protected, but if you do nothing to right these wrongs, you reap what you sow. That curse is in your own soul. She went on to say, You white women, you white women here, speak of rights. I speak of wrongs. She was addressing a room of mostly white women in 1866. Not entirely, but the National Women's Rights Convention was led by white women. Desperate. Rightly so, to secure the vote for women. And in 1866, there started to be some tension about would the National Women's Rights Convention focus on women only or shift some of their work to make the 13th Amendment pass so that black men could get the right to vote too. And there was a lot of dissension about that. Who should get to vote first? And Frances Watkins Harper, because she had spoken personally and written narratives of people coming out of slavery, she had, in that year after the Civil War, traveled to the South to take firsthand accounts of freed people and saw the direct violence that happened to black men and women, said to her white compatriots, comfortably middle class, said to them, you speak of rights your right to vote, but I speak of wrongs because we have to address the wrongs in this country if we are ever all going to be free together. Frances Watkins Harper used her gifts rooted in her spirituality to speak truth to power even when it was uncomfortable for her and surely uncomfortable for her listeners. And she worked tirelessly, although I'm sure she was tired many days, to, yes, secure the rights to vote for women, but also to make sure that some of those wrongs that had been done by the American system of slavery really did get addressed. What would she do today? I think she would do what she did then. She would say, our systems are still corrupt. They unfairly target black and brown people. Mass incarceration and over-policing hurt all of our souls. The attacks on women's rights and trans rights are attacks on bodily autonomy, attacks on the very notion that we are all beloved children of God. And she would say, again, that we are all one bundle of humanity and 
and we must address the needs of those most harmed and those most in need. And that it is our faith and our spirituality that calls us to do so. I said once in a message here, and some of you have shared this sentiment with me, that it can be hard to stay hopeful. It can be all too easy to despair. When we see the work that we do move forward two steps, and then I don't know, this year, has it felt like back three? But Frances Harper Frances Harper, when you think about that, so she was born in 1825. She lived until 1911. So she saw the end of slavery in America. She lived through Reconstruction. She was part of the debates about the changing of the Constitution and women's rights. She was part of the debates about ending child labor. She was part of the debates about do we create universal education. And she saw a great change in her life towards those goals, towards that progress. And you all, she saw the rise of Jim Crow. She saw the increased lynchings. By the end of her life, when she was still living in Philadelphia, teaching and mentoring young African-American women, one of those people she made room for in her house was Ida B. Wells, who was an African-American journalist based in Chicago who wrote, long and eloquently about lynching in America. She and Frances Harper were friends, and they wrote letters to each other and to other leaders, decrying, decrying what was happening with the rise of Jim Crow and segregation all over the country. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the work she had done for 60 years and to see it start to crumble, the despair she herself must have felt? Yet she kept moving. She kept working. Working in her church at First Unitarian Philadelphia. Working with the AME Society. Working to continue to build bridges. When I want to despair sometimes, Frances Harper is one of the ancestors I look to to remind me that despair is not an option. Love and community And doing the work in front of me is my only option. It is what my faith and my spirituality call me to do. I hope, beloveds, it is what it calls you to do. Unless you think I'm just guessing that she remained hopeful, despite, despite the harshness of the world in which she lived, one of the last poems she wrote in the last decade of her life was called Songs for the People. And I want to share it with you, not in its totality, just an excerpt. It's a long poem. But it gives me hope, not that things just will work out, but that when we work together, we will make it work out. And so Frances Harper wrote in about 1901, just a decade before she died, Let me make the songs for the people, songs for the old and young. Song heard of the battle cry wherever they are sung, not for the clashing of sabers, nor for carnage, nor for strife, but songs to the hearts of men with more abundant life. Let me make songs for the weary, songs for the little children, 
songs for the poor and aged. Because our world is so worn and weary, it needs music pure and strong to hush the jangle and discords of sorrow, pain, and wrong. Music to soothe all its sorrows till war and crime shall cease and the hearts of men grow tender and girdle the world with peace. What what would Francis Harper do in these days is what Francis Harper did in her days, which is sing a song for her people, all of her people, calling those in power to repair harms, to be accountable, to center the needs of those most needy, and to do so in the name of love and peace and justice. And I hope, my dear, dear Wellsprings community, that no matter, no matter what may come to us in these days of spring, that we too will hold a song for the people in our hearts. And if we start to despair, we will ask ourselves, what would Frances Harper do? And we do her song, and we sing it together. Maybe so. If you enjoyed this message and would like to support the mission of Wellsprings, go to our website, wellspringsuu.org. That's wellsprings, the letters uu.org.